As you know, we are currently in the 10 days of repentance. These are the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Judgment, that we already celebrated, we already marked. And of course, in a couple of days, we will have the great day, the greatest day of them all, the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day where our verdict is sealed and finalized. Of course, we know this is in the Talmud. This is well-established. This is, of course, a centerpiece of our prayers. On Rosh Hashanah, our future is determined, but there's still some wiggle room. There is still some capacity to change it, to alter it. It is sealed on Yom Kippur. And, of course, we have extra prayers that we say, and there's an emphasis of doing more mitzvos. And of course, we're going to have the great fast of Yom Kippur and a whole day of, of prayers and all in efforts to try to achieve the best verdict possible and to have the best year and to be successful in our endeavors. And yesterday, my son, my son Yoshua came home and he tells me that in his yeshiva, they, uh, the Rebbe, the teacher, asked them two very difficult questions about repentance. And he said, there's an incentive. Whoever writes the best answer gets $20. So he shared with me those questions. And I want to share with you the questions and the answers that I gave him. I don't know if he won yet or not. He he said, you're allowed to ask whoever you want. The best written response gets 20 bucks. And I I thought they were very interesting questions. Uh, that relate, of course, to the season of repentance that we are in middle of. And I think that they can also launch us into some very useful and productive discussions regarding repentance and how to make the most of these days. So here are the, there are two questions, and I'll share some of the answers, and I think it'll be very uh, in- insightful and, and interesting, but hopefully also will help us to make more more use out of these out of these days. Question number one, we know the Talmud tells us that our judgment, it's done in a two-tiered process. It starts off on Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah, well, that's when the verdict is written. And we hope it's being inscribed in the Book of Life, but that's just the beginning. And then we have Yom Kippur where the judgment is sealed, it's finalized. And the Talmud tells us and this is the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 16b, that on Rosh Hashanah, there are three different books that are opened. One book is for the completely wicked, one book is for the completely righteous, and one book is for the Benonim, for everyone in between. And whoever is meritorious to enter into the book of the completely righteous, well, right away, they get signed to life. Signed, sealed, and delivered. And those who are unfortunate to end up in the book of the completely wicked, well, they right away are signed off to death. And then you have the Benonim, the in-betweeners, and their status, the third book, those who are in the third book, their status is in limbo. And from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur, they have the choice to be in book A or book B, 
to veer towards righteousness and to merit life, or to make the unfortunate decision to veer towards wickedness and then end up to be inscribed for death. A very fascinating Talmud here in the book of Rosh Hashanah. There are, there are three different books, and every person can end up in one of these three statuses, these three designations. And of course, this is a very relevant subject to us, even though we've already passed Rosh Hashanah. But we're told that, the, you know, the at least for the Bainerim, for the, those who are in the in-betweeners, their status is still pending. And therefore, Rosh Hashanah is not, it's not the end of their, of their verdict. Yes, those who are at the poles, at the farther ends of the spectrum, the completely righteous and completely wicked, they receive final judgment on Rosh Hashanah. But the people that are in between, well, we still have, or they still have, up to Yom Kippur to determine their destiny and fate. Now, what determines which book a person is written into? How do we know who ends up in book one, verses two, verses three? And this is particularly important for us to figure out because we have this whole 10 days of repentance for all those in-betweeners, and we don't know what qualifies a person to be an in-betweener. How does a person receive this designation? Not righteous, not wicked, in-between. What are the criteria to end up in the book of completely righteous, or completely wicked, or in-between? The Talmud is silent about that question. But of course, the the commentaries, they help us. And they tell us like this. If someone has more mitzvos, more good deeds than sins, than violations of the will of God, well, they're righteous. If someone has more sins than mitzvos, well, they're wicked. And someone who has 50-50 half like this, half like that, well, they end up in the third book of the in-betweeners. Of course, we have all sorts of actions that we do. Our deeds, and truthfully, our our thoughts and our, our speech, that's all included in deeds and behavior. And if we do the right thing, we listen to God, that's a mitzvah. And you do, God forbid, the, the wrong thing, you violate the will of God in a given scenario, well, that's a sin. And you weigh them out. You, you count them out and you figure which one's more. And more righteousness is a righteous person. More wickedness is a wicked person. And if it's exactly 50-50, well, then you have the in-betweener. That's what Tosus seems to say. And the Rambam says that as well. Rambam in the Laws of Repentance, chapter 3, law number 1, he says that, well, every person in the world, we're all a mixed bag. We all have some mitzvos and we all have some sins. No one's perfect. But if you calculate, you weigh, you measure, what's more? If someone has more mitzvos, more righteous deeds than sins, they are a tzaddik. They are righteous. If someone is the opposite, they have more sins than mitzvos, then they are a rasha. They are wicked. Mechza le if it's half and half, 
50-50, that is a benoni. Then he tells us, well, there's some nuance to how things are tallied, how it's calculated. It's not calculated based upon the number of deeds, rather based upon the size. Because you could have one mitzvah, that's such a great mitzvah, it equals a number of sins. It, it balances out a number of sins. Conversely, of a sin, that's such an egregious sin, that it can equal a number of mitzvahs. And we cannot do this, only God can do that. He's the one who is able to figure out the exact value of every mitzvah and every sin. But seemingly from the Ramam as well, this determination of which book a person enters into, well, that's the product of this divine calculation of mitzvos versus sins. And here is some of the preliminary questions. We haven't got yet to the incentive question. What are the odds? What are the odds that someone is exactly 50-50? If you think about it, if we're tallying a person's thoughts and actions, and words, and every one of those falls into one category or the other, righteous or wicked. One night, how many is that in a year? Is that millions, billions? What are the odds that anyone is 50-50? Even if we're not dealing with the, the total volume number of these, but still, it seems so vanishingly unlikely that anyone would be exactly 50-50. And if so, well, then the overwhelming majority of humanity is not part of this whole 10 days of repentance calculation. If they're righteous, more than 50 plus 1 mitzvos, well, they're righteous, and that's determined on Rosh Hashanah. 50 plus 1 sins, well then, they have the opposite designation. So what percentage of humanity don't have their standing settled on Rosh Hashanah? Seems like it's very small. Now this is not the question that was asked. It was a different question. It was a more clever question. If we understand that the 10 days of repentance and Yom Kippur, it's only for the in-betweeners, right? Everyone else, well, Rosh Hashanah was enough for them. Their standing was determined, signed, and sealed on Rosh Hashanah. So 10 days of repentance and Yom Kippur is only for the in-betweeners. And how does an in-betweener become a righteous person? Well, if you're only an in-betweener, if you're 50-50, you do one mitzvah. You're 50 plus one. One mitzvah alters your status. So I have a brilliant solution, says my son Yehoshua. Just do one mitzvah and call it a day. Why the whole rigmarole? What a clever question. Simplify it. Don't we like to simplify things? The 10 days of repentance and all these prayers and Avinu Malkeinu and remember us for life and we're fasting and we're praying, Yom Kippur. 
If one mitzvah tips the scale, that's all you need to do. Do the mitzvah. Call it a day. I'll see you next. I'll see you next year. That was question number one. It's an interesting question. And I gave him a bunch of answers, which he wrote down furiously. We'll see if he won the prize. In a few of the answers, I accepted his framing. And in one of them, I just completely shattered it. Here's what I told him. Suppose it's true. Someone is 50-50, exactly. The exact number of mitzvahs and sins. You do one mitzvah. Well, now you're righteous. So you want to call it a day. But what does it mean to call it a day? You're going to start neglecting things. You're going to stop doing mitzvahs. Well, if you stop doing mitzvahs right away, what happens? The definition of a non-mitzvah is a sin. There's no ambiguous par of deeds. It's either righteous or wicked. Are you listening to God right now? Yes. Okay, that's a mitzvah. Are you not? Well, the word for that is a sin. So you do a mitzvah and you tip yourself in the right direction. Well, what happens if you just go on vacation now, spiritual vacation? Well, those sins begin to accrue and you could lapse in the opposite direction. And therefore, to work furiously to make sure that we end off with Yom Kippur in the camp of the righteous. That was the first thing I told him. And then I said, well, there's another point. Suppose I am part of a community. Let's say a part of a family or a city or a country or the world. There are different congruent judgments happening on these different concentric levels. So every individual is being judged, but every family, every community, every nation, and the whole world is being judged. And if I tip the scale for myself in one direction, what about the rest of humanity? What about the rest of the community? Because my actions, they're part of the collective whole. And thus, I may tip myself in the right direction, but if I stop... Take the foot off the gas, lapse into complacency. Well, now the rest of humanity will suffer. And the truth is, the Rambam himself says this. He says that a person has to view themselves every moment of the, of the, of the year. You have to imagine that you are exactly 50-50. And your next decision Determines your fate forever. Oh, and the whole world, if you just pile up all the deeds of all of humanity, on one side you have the sins, one side you have the mitzvahs, it's exactly 50-50. And your next decision not only determines your fate and your destiny and your eternity, the fate, the destiny, the eternity of all of humanity. And with that sort of framing, every action, every thought, every word, everything you do really, really matters. Because that will determine the fate of everyone and everything. 
And then he says, this is why there is a universal, ubiquitous custom to do more charity, more tzedakah, and more mitzvos during the 10 days of repentance. Because now the fate, not just your own fate, but the fate of everyone, is in the balance, hanging in the balance, in limbo, to be determined. Status pending until Yom Kippur. And that's why people get up at night, when it's still you know, before daybreak, to pray and to say all the supplications. That's why. Because it's not just you whose future, whose destiny is at stake, it's everyone's. And therefore, yes, for yourself, we're not, we're not selfish. We don't just think about ourselves, we think about others as well. That was another idea that I told them. And maybe there's another idea here. And this I did not tell him, actually. But I thought of it afterwards. Repentance is not just about those three books. It's not like the only thing that matters is which book I'm in. Every sin that a person does, it will haunt them until you either repent or you are punished and cleansed from the damage, the spiritual damage that that sin did to your soul. Those are the only ways to address it. And therefore, you want to repent, not just to change your status in the book that you're in, but to make sure that you know this is the propitious time to repent. These are the days of repentance. This is the days when repentance is more effective. It's more powerful. God is close to us more during these 10 days than the rest of the year. It's the season of repentance. It's not just about changing your status, which book you're in. You have an opportunity to do a lot of work, to improve your soul, to cleanse your soul, to purify your soul, to refine yourself during these times. And therefore, doing one mitzvah and calling it a day, I'll see you next Rosh Hashanah, that misses much of the point. So these were some ideas that I shared that I shared and didn't share with him, but, but that accepted his framing. Then I told him another approach. And this was based upon an essay that I read, written by my grandfather, a blessed memory. I read it many, many years ago. But it's a very powerful idea. And it effectively shatters the framing of the question. And I think it's an idea that gets to the core of what these days are really all about. When you think about a mitzvah, so it's an action, it's a thought, it's a speech that you do that's listening to God. You are now in compliance with the will of the Almighty. And vice versa, God forbid, if there's a sin, well, it's an action, it's a thought, it's a speech that a person does that violates the will of God. That's a terrible thing. But what does it mean for a person to listen, to hearken to God? And what does it mean for a person to violate the will of God? A mitzvah, it's not just a deed. It's an act of faith. It's a demonstration of a person's fidelity to God. 
It's a demonstration for a person's accepting the dominion of God. Every mitzvah, it's not just an action in isolation. It's a demonstration that a person's saying, God is my master. I'm choosing to do something or to avoid something because of my submission to the Almighty. What about a sin? It's not just an isolated act of disobedience to to God. It's an effect. Idolatry, really. God says not to do something, and a person rebels, violates that. We know that at Sinai, there were only two of the Ten Commandments that God said directly to all of Israel, the first two. I am the Lord your God, and don't have any other foreign gods. And the commentaries tell us that really, there are only two mitzvahs, one positive and one negative. Because every single mitzvah is effectively an act of faith, of accepting the notion of God being the Lord. And every sin, it has within it an element of idolatry. And even if it's not bowing down to some figurine, it's a submission to a different deity. The Talmud tells us that a sin is capitulation to the foreign god, the Yetzahara. And thus, every, every action, it's a choice of either I want to submit to the Almighty or I want to submit to a different deity, to the foreign god. And if you look at the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur prayers, there's a, a recurring motif of uh, Melech Elyon, the lofty God, versus Melech Evion, the pitiful God, God with a lower case G. The Yitzhak is, is a God, lower case G, is a king, lower case K. And when a person violates the will of the Almighty, they are in effect accepting the dominion of the foreign God. And that's really what's at stake with every choice that we make. So it's not like a person does deeds and they're just, you know, divorced from any allegiances. A mitzvah is an act of allegiance to the Almighty. It's an act of submission, of fealty to God. And conversely, a sin well, that's, that's mutiny. That's, that's an insurrection. That is a rebellion. That's sedition against God. And instead, it's submission to the foreign God. Well, we have a choice to do something or to think something or to say something. And we know what God wants. And then there's the other thing. In effect, the choice is which master are we accepting? Is it the Almighty God, the lofty king, or is it the foreign God? Is it life or is it death? God bestows life. The Yetzirah has another name. It's called the angel of death. And that's what these days are all about. 
Rosh Hashanah, we'd crown a king. We'd coronate God. And we evict the foreign God. We install the Melech Elyon, the lofty king, and we try to remove the Melech Evion. We want him to abdicate, but he won't leave on his own. We have to punch him and kick him out of there. That's what the judgment of Rosh Hashanah is. Are you participating in this coronation ceremony? Or perhaps are you partial to a different, quote-unquote, power? Do you maintain fidelity to the Almighty? Or do you kneel before the foreign god? Which is it? And of course, the actions... That's a manifestation of that. That's almost a proxy. You want to see who a person's master is, look at their actions. Are these the actions that are advocated by God or by the foreign God? But the essence of the judgment is a layer up. Who is your master? And people fit into three books. You have the completely righteous. They only serve one master. They only submit before God. And you have the completely wicked, and they are only subservient to the foreign God. And then you have the in-betweeners, and they kind of have both. They simultaneously harbor submission to God and to the foreign God. In some eras, in some domains, in some dimensions, they're loyal to the Almighty. They're loyal to God creator of heaven and earth. They accept his rule. They obey his law. They submit themselves before him. But these in-betweeners also have some weaknesses. In some areas, the foreign god still has a foothold. In some areas, they are under the spell, under the vice of the Yitzhahara. At the same time, they worship both kings. And those people are placed in a third book. And then they have 10 days to determine, to make a choice, which master do you actually want? And that's the purpose of these 10 days of repentance. And Yom Kippur, that's the essence of it. You can't just do one mitzvah and call it a day. You're trying to wrest control of the Yitzhah over you and instead to install the Almighty as the master, you want to kick Pharaoh away, abandon Pharaoh, and accept God. That is what we're trying to accomplish during these days. That's what we're trying to achieve with all the prayers, with the fasting, the extra supplications, the tremitzvos. That's what it's all about. The Hebrew word for repentance is tshuva, to return. It's not just about, oh, I'm going to stay who I am. I'm just going to change those behaviors, but I'll stay the same. Of course, it's about deeds as well, but ultimately it's about returning to God. It's abandoning the fealty to the foreign God and returning home. And that's the emphasis of these days. And of course, it constantly ascends higher levels until it reaches the crescendo, the climax of Yom Kippur. And we cry out seven times, Hashem, who Elohim? Hashem is the God. 
Hashem to the exclusion of the foreign God. By the climax of Yom Kippur, if we did it correctly, we will have transferred ourselves into the status of the completely righteous. Now, of course, it helps that Yom Kippur, the whole day is designed to do this for us. The Talmud tells us that the Satan, which is another one of the names of the Yitzhara, the Yitzhara has three names, Yitzhara, Satan, Malach Amavis, the Yitzhara, the Satan, and the Angel of Death. But the Satan has no power on this day. The goal of these days and Yom Kippur, it's to cease our affinity to the pitiful king and to establish complete loyalty to the lofty king. And of course, this expands the relevance of these days. It's not just, you know, the, the one in a million who happens to be exactly 50-50. It's not just a question of being 50-50 in deeds. That's vanishingly unlikely. Many people, most people, would qualify. Many, most people, they have this dual allegiances. Yeah, they believe in God. Yeah, they accept God. And they, they would not do certain things, even if no one's watching and no one will find out. And they won't do it because they recognize that God is watching. But sometimes, and this is most people, many people, most people, they forget that. And they sometimes get seduced by the Yitzhara, by the foreign God, by the pitiful king. There's a lot of people that fall into those, into this camp. And now, is the time to address it. So long as a person has an affinity to both potential masters, to the lofty king and the pitiful one, you are an in-betweener. And now it's the time to change it. And I think it's a very useful idea for these days. We know what it's, all, it's about. We recognize what it's about. Yes, of course, we talk about all the sins that we did and we try to address them and, and repent. But ultimately, repentance is about returning. And a sin, at its core, is an act of rebellion. And it's tantamount on some level to idolatry. And we, we kind of like being in the middle we want to have optionality. We don't want to be a, a fanatic. But it's very helpful to realize what's at stake. What does it mean to be someone who's an in-betweener? It means that, yes, you are loyal to God, but you're also a traitor. And that's a terrible thing. Nobody wants to be a traitor. Elijah had to deal with this. The scripture tells us. He tells the nation, this is in Kings 1, 18, 21. Until when are you going to have both? You're going to try to have both? You want your cake and to eat it too? If Hashem, God, is the master, go after him. And if it's Baal, it's the idol, follow Baal. Make a choice. People were living with dual allegiances. They had an affinity to God and they accepted him. But they also worshiped Baal. 
And they didn't view that as a, as a problem, as, as a contradiction. Just like we, we don't realize that, hey, you, you do a lot of mitzvahs, we accept God, of course. But somehow we also genuflect at the altar of the foreign God. And we don't see the, the dissonance in our own behavior. We don't see the blatant contradiction in our own, in our own life choices. We think that there could be harmony between these dual and dueling allegiances. And the reason why is because we don't, we don't view sins as a rebellion. And this is the main lesson of the 10 days of repentance. A sin is not just some isolated mistake or, well, of course it is a mistake, but it's not just, oh, a violation of the will of God. Ah, he understands. It is a tacit repudiation of God's dominion. In this area, you are pledging allegiance to another deity and repudiating your purported, your alleged submission to the Almighty. And that is totally unconscionable. And yes, we're all guilty of this. And that's why we all have 10 days of repentance. And we all have Yom Kippur. Because now is the time to consider it. Now is the time to try to address it. And now is the time to take steps towards complete fidelity to God. And if we do that, we, we can actually become completely righteous. And you know what happens after Yom Kippur? Yetzirah is given extra power. And we've achieved complete repentance. We've returned completely to God. Yetzirah gets extra power just to, to level up with us. So if someone says, hey, last year I tried it. I did it last year. It didn't work. It did work. You just, because you transform yourself into a completely righteous person, now you have a bigger Yetzirah as well. But that's the way I resolved this question. It's not about just do one mitzvah, you're done. Call it a day. There's much more here at stake. And that brings us to the next question. $20. Here's the question. Repentance is presented in the literature as a great benefit that the Almighty bestowed upon us. The authoritative book on repentance, the Shari Shuvah, the Gates of Repentance, it begins, Of the great benefits that God bestowed upon his creatures is that he gave them a path and created the idea of repentance. God does a lot of kindness with us. But maybe the greatest kindness, the greatest goodness is that he invented the notion of repentance. And thus, a sin is not some irreversible stain on our soul. It could be annulled. It could be undone. It could be reversed. What a beautiful thing. Now, this characterization is found in many places in literature that it's an incredible goodness. What a benefit. God in his eternal benevolence created the notion of repentance. Now, we spoke about this in the past. The Talmud tells us in the book of Psachim, page 54a, 
that there are seven things that were created prior to the creation of the world. And one of them is repentance. And what does it mean that repentance was created before the world? What does it mean that it preceded the world? So in the past, we explained that repentance, it's such a novel insight. It's something that if the world was already created, there's just no way to have repentance. Repentance so thoroughly violates the rules of the world that if you create the world first, there's no way to create repentance. You take a a glass vase and you shatter it into a million pieces. There's just no way to fix it. You can't mend it. Sin, it creates a blemish in the soul. It should be irreversible. The Talmud tells us that sin creates a prosecuting angel. Someone does a sin, they have, in effect, created an angel. And repentance, well, it eliminates that angel. How can a person eliminate an angel? There's no way. The rules of our world don't allow for that. The only way that repentance can exist is if it preceded the world. And the Almighty in his benevolence, he created, before he created the world, he created repentance. What a, what a goodness, what a benefit. And here's the question. Best answer gets $20. Repentance is such a benefit. The opposite is also true. If someone regrets a mitzvah, that mitzvah is lost. If a person says, I feel so bad that I did that mitzvah yesterday. I wish I didn't do it. It's like, it's like reverse repentance, anti-repentance. Such a person, the Talmud tells us, the Raman brings it down also in chapter 3 of the laws of repentance, such a person has lost the merit of said mitzvah. There's the concept of anti-repentance, of reverse repentance. Repentance is, you do a sin, you regret it, you lose the sin. Here it's the opposite. A person does a mitzvah, they regret the mitzvah, and they lose the mitzvah. It's the exact opposite of repentance. If a sin creates an angel that gets eliminated with repentance, a mitzvah also creates a defending angel that gets eliminated with reverse repentance. If someone regrets the mitzvah that they did, they've lost all the benefit of that mitzvah. So here's the question. Another clever one. What is this great benefit of repentance? Such a great goodness that God bestowed upon us. The opposite is also true. And therefore just nets out to zero. If undoing a sin is possible, but undoing a mitzvah is not possible, well, that's a, that's a net benefit. But here, you have the upside, because you can eliminate a sin with, with repentance. But there's also the downside that you could regret a mitzvah, and you could lose it. So what's the great benefit? It works both ways. 
That is a clever question, you have to admit. And I gave him two answers. I think that if he does win the 20 bucks, I probably deserve a little slice of the action. At a minimum, the miser, the, the tithing should go to torch. At a minimum. And he assured me this is all within the rules. Doesn't You can ask anyone in the world, you get an answer, it's the best one, you win. Here are the two answers that I gave him. The Talmud, in the book of Yoma, page 86b, says something unbelievable. Repentance is so great, sins get transformed into mitzvos. The Talmud explains that there's two types of repentance. Repentance out of fear, repentance out of love. When a person repents out of fear, then the the sins don't get reclassified as mitzvos. But when a person repents out of love, then the repentance not only eliminates the sting of the sin, but that same sin has been turned into a mitzvah. An amazing insight. There's a certain kind of tshuva of repentance that retroactively changes the sins and transforms them into a mitzvah. And it seems totally incomprehensible. How can a sin be a mitzvah? I can understand maybe that, well, you do a sin and you regret it. Somehow the effect of the sin is eliminated. But how can any sin be turned into a mitzvah? How can a sin, which is a rebellion against God, it's a violation of the will of God, how can that ever be turned into a mitzvah? And my grandfather, blessed memory, used to say that there's a form of repentance where the sin itself inspires the transformation, the return back to God. A person sins, and they actually consider it, and they, they, they think about the fact that this was such a bad idea. God does so much good for me, and this is how I repay him. And they feel sad about it. And they feel sad about how that sin created distance between them and God. And truthfully, that sin created distance between themselves and their soul and their true identity and what they really want out of life. And that sadness that was caused by the sin actually is the impetus for the repentance and the ultimate closeness that is forged between that person and God with repentance. And thus, if you look at this person after they're done, the process of repentance, the bottom line is that that action that initially created distance between them and God, it ultimately contributed toward the deepening of the relationship And thus, it can be reclassified as a mitzvah. But the opposite is not true. When a person reverse repents, anti-repents, they regret a mitzvah. 
yes, they lose it. But under no circumstances does it get turned into a sin. So maybe this is the answer to the question, what is the benefit of repentance? Here's the benefit. If a person regrets a mitzvah, yes, they lose it. But it can never be turned into a sin. Whereas with repentance, you have the capability to not only eliminate your sins, but you can also transform them into mitzvahs. And that, well, that's a great benefit. And the positivity outweighs the negative. The upside is greater than the downside. And thus, repentance is something to celebrate. And then I said another idea. This is more of a subtle point. Regret. That is not something that we experience after we do the right thing. And there's some framework here that's necessary for us to understand this. When we get inspired, aroused to do something bad, that can be very powerful. That could seem almost insurmountable. But the experience and the desire and the compulsion that exists before the deed is very different than how we experience it afterwards. And that's where regret can come in. The Talmud tells us that when the Yetzirah is slaughtered in the end of days, the righteous will be weeping. The wicked will be weeping. Everyone's weeping. And the righteous are going to say, this is found in the Talmud, Sukkah 52a, the righteous are going to weep and say, how do we overcome this mountain? And the wicked, they will weep and say, how do we trip over this strand of here? And the obvious question is, wait a minute, how does the Yitzhara appear to the righteous as an imposing mountain and to the wicked as a lowly strand of hair? And the answer is, one of them exists before the deed. One of them exists afterwards. Before the deed, the Yitzhara, it seems insurmountable. But afterwards, you realize it was just a strand of hair. And that's where regret comes into place. A sin is much more appealing ahead of time than it is afterwards. Mitzvahs are the opposite. They're much less appealing ahead of time, but they provide great gratification afterwards. The Mishnah tells us you should chase a mitzvah and you should run away, you should flee from a sin. Well, if I have to chase down a mitzvah, it means that the mitzvah's run away from me. If I have to run away from a sin, it means that sin's chasing me. There's asymmetry here. The mitzvahs are fleeing from you. You have to hunt them down. And the sins, well, they're chasing you. You have to escape. Before you do something, the sin is much more enticing. It's chasing you down. If you do nothing, it will consume you. The mitzvah, it has the opposite appeal. It's running away from you. It's, it's fleeing from you. You have to chase it down. You got to work really hard ahead of time to catch it. But afterwards, the sin 
leaves you with a feeling of regret and the mitzvah that infuses within you a sense of tremendous satisfaction. And that's why there's free will. Because a mitzvah bestows true pleasure upon the person meritorious enough to do one. And a sin leaves behind a lingering bad taste. Before the sin, the tzaddik sees a mountain. It's very significant. It's substantial. But afterwards, the, the wicked, all they see is a strand of here. Really? This is all I got from all that inspiration, that excitement? It's much more sizzle than steak. The Yetzirah's power, it dissipates afterwards. And thus the mitzvah that was not so appealing, when the Yetzirah leaves, you have the real pleasure. The soul is, is given life and vitality with the mitzvah. You feel amazing. And the Yetzirah, once the, uh, the sin, once the veil of the Yetzirah has been lifted, you just wish you could redo your choice. And thus, it's very rare to regret a mitzvah. It's very common to regret a sin. And thus, it's an outlier to regret a mitzvah. And yes, there's a convention for it, but it is astonishingly rare. It's rare to have someone who has the, the strength and the fortitude to do a mitzvah. And then, once the Yetzirah's power goes away... To regret it? It's like, it's like someone who is able to climb a very lofty mountain and then getting tripped over a small strand of hair. And thus, the fact that we can regret a mitzvah and lose it, that is a gross outlier and it's not really much of a detriment. But to repent, that is a great benefit. And we are very much willing to take the downside risk that comes along with this bargain. Now, besides for hopefully winning my son some nice pocket change, I think there are some very valuable lessons that we can take away from these questions and the the insights that they spawned. There are books that are open and many people, maybe everyone, most people, not everyone, but certainly mo- most, many, certainly we can imagine many people, we have these, these competing allegiances. And we don't realize that a sin really is it's idolatry on some level. Because it's the accepting of the will of the foreign god, the pitiful imposter that's trying to vie for our allegiance. We have to realize what's at stake and what we're trying to accomplish over the course of these these days. Repentance is a great benefit. The bad can be transformed into good. And when we are trying to repent and we're dwelling on our voluminous sins and we feel regret, that's a very potent tool to hopefully achieve a very high level of repentance, repentance out of love.
And that will not only change our status for that uh, designation, which book we're, we're going to end up in and what our, our year will look like, but it can radically transform our lives going forward. And these are the times, these are the days, these are days of closeness. The Talmud tells us that, well, the verse tells us we have to, we have to seek out God when He is close. God can be found. These are days of great opportunity. And we don't just do one mitzvah and call it a day. Our entire lives can be transformed over the course of these days of repentance and the awesome day of Yom Kippur, which is upcoming. And I hope and I pray that all of us merit to have a successful, uplifting, meaningful, and productive days of repentance and Yom Kippur. We should do the hard work of addressing the the real important vexing questions that we have to ask ourselves. And we evaluate and assess and really do some hard, difficult introspection. And hopefully make a quantum leap that will change not just our status in which book we're in, but redirect us and improve our trajectory going forward. And uh, my grandfather used to always say that the great Rabbi Israel Salanter used to say that we take for granted that Yom Kippur comes every year. If it came every 70 years, then people would greet each other and wish each other you should be meritorious to witness a Yom Kippur. You should be lucky, fortunate to see Yom Kippur. That's how powerful this day is. This is the day where God is close to us. Lifnei Hashem Titaru. Purify yourself, the verse tells us. When you are before Hashem, God is close. And God will be more distant after this is over. Let's make use of these days and transform, refine, and uplift ourselves and never look back. And of course, my email address is rabbiwalby.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.